All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the Soundworks Collection video series. I'm Michael Coleman, and I'm incredibly excited to have a creative team, both on the music and sound side and direction from The Social Dilemma. I'm incredibly excited to celebrate this team's uh, nominations. They had seven nominations from cinematography, directing, picture editing, sound editing, writing, and music composition. So um, yeah, welcome you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Thank you. thanks for having us. Thank so, you, Michael. So Jeff, what is it like to, uh, on, you know, on the morning of the nominations, find out that your film that, you know, released you know, almost two years ago was nominated and and then obviously recognized in so many of these below the line departments. Um, I, it was absolutely thrilling. I mean, that doesn't even do justice to how it felt. I think the thing that was most special about it was that every craft department was basically nominated. And that was a really, really exciting opportunity. Not just opportunity, but it was like a huge, I just felt so proud of this whole team that delivered in such a powerful way that it was recognized all across the board. So um, yeah, I, I was just blown away the whole, uh, literally the messages were, were coming in in real time, like, oh, wow, and cinematography. Oh, wow, and sound. Oh, wow, and composing. And and and, and it, was, uh, it was just absolutely a, a thrill. That's great. Um... You know, I'd love to understand maybe how you came about picking and choosing. Obviously, you did your sound post at Skywalker Sound, and that's where Richard and Andre, uh, Andrea are. But um, how did you and Mark get first collaborate? How did you guys find each other? Mark and I have known each other and worked together for how many? I don't even know how many years. Um, sort of like straight out of when Mark was in college. Like and, over a decade, I think. Yeah. And so we've been working together for quite a while. Um uh, in various capacities. And Mark really has just been uh, getting more and more into composing over the last couple of years. So this was the first time um, Mark has some songs on Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral. Uh, but this is the first time that he's been at the helm for a, a big project like this. Yeah, I originally came on board as a sound recordist for The Social Dilemma. Um, and then uh, started kind of thinking of some ideas for what a you know hypothetical soundtrack might sound like for this film. And just started like going back and sketching out some music uh, without the understand or without the um, thinking that it might be in the film at some point. Um, and I passed it on to Davis, the editor, and he kind of slipped it into the into the cuts. And then Jeff started kind of listening, and I think his ears started perking up to, to some of my my music. Um, but yeah, and that's sort of how the conversation started. You know, our editor Davis, he's got temp music from a bunch of different soundtracks and different music libraries, and he's always working with different things just to figure out what's the feeling, what's the vibe. And um, we, were, we were having early on countless conversations around like, what should this film sound like? And uh, consistently, you know, we'd be reviewing a scene or, or a, you know, one section of the film. And I'm oh, wait, hold on, who wrote this? Like, where did this music come from? And then Davis would be like, yeah, Mark wrote it. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I can't tell you how many times that happened. And so it was really clear that, that Mark had the, had the whole sound figured out for this film. That's awesome. So um, when you were shopping for a, a sound team, how do you even go about you know, navigating you know, the landscape? It just seems like you know, nowadays, obviously, this is pre-pandemic. So everything was more, a little more in person. Um, but I, I think just like timeline-wise, you were also you had uh, applied for Sundance, you got accepted to screen at, premiere at Sundance. Yeah. And so what was the, what was the timeline between identifying that you needed to like yeah. pretty much get your film ready for Sundance? Right. This, this film had a very crunched timeline for a number of reasons, but also, um, 
you know, for those of who have seen the film, you know that there's a documentary component and then there's a narrative component that blends into the doc. And we go back and forth between the nonfiction elements and then these narrative elements that we were able to bring to life. Um, and the production schedule for that was rather delayed and it took a long time for us to get that lined up. Um, and everything was reverse engineered from the Sundance January deadlines and timelines. Um, but we shot a lot of those narrative pieces in November before January, uh, before the January premiere. So Richard and Andrea and the team were getting deliveries pretty late in this timeline. Um, we had worked with Skywalker in the past and just have always loved the relationship and have always loved the talent that we've had access to there. And, um, and really that was, that was kind of the starting point, knowing we wanted to bring the film to, to Skywalker. And, uh, and it was just amazing to have the team come together at Skywalker to, to make all of this happen. So for you, Richard, when, when you get the first kind of ask comes to you, you know, you get the email and say, are you interested in working on this project? This is what it's about. Here's the director. Here's the team. You know, what caught your attention? What was unique and different about this project? As, as Jeff mentioned, the, the documentary drama sort of hybrid nature is certainly unique. Um, yeah, I remember John, our head of production approached me and uh, told me about the project and, and um, I, had, I had seen Chasing Ice previously and caught up and watched Chasing Coral and was just really blown away by both of those, both of those films. And then I was really curious as to this, this project because of that hybrid nature. And I had gotten the opportunity to work on um, a National Geographic series called Mars that did a, a not dissimilar thing um, in jumping between uh, documentary portions and drama portions. Um, but this, th in that there was sort of a, a greater distinction between the two, two parts, whereas this sort of really sort of went back and forth, um, sometimes shot by shot. And so it was, it was, it was quite different. And um, I was just really excited to, to tackle, you know, a documentary um, that had that component in it. And within that component, it, it's, it has sort of these elements of that presented really cool opportunities for sound design because we enter this sort of like AI world within the devices or, you know, however you want to look at it. Um, so the drama component itself also had these very sort of, you know, high concept spaces and, and characters and, and things which were sort of a sonic playground for me to, uh, to play in. So, um, it sort of, it sort of had a bit of everything a bit of, you know, the documentary side, but also sort of grounded real world drama and then sort of high end concept, um, science or quasi science fiction side of things as well. So that was a, that was really sort of a, a buffet of stuff to work on. Andre, I love to understand your process. You know, when you do get a, a new film, especially a documentary and, you know, a lot of times the documentaries, you'll have our composer's music, we'll have some production audio, but like what, when, when you think of doing you know, fully work for a documentary, where does your eyes and ears go to when spotting a script or opportunities? Like where, where's the priority with like a condensed timeline and everything else that comes along with this? Right. Well, I think the key is really what are the priorities and especially in a documentary, you have to pick your moments really carefully because Foley is always uh, kind of given the opportunity to help make the characters on screen seem more real, more 3D and um, more grounded in the scene. Um, and so I think most of the time as Foley artist, I'm not spotting the film. In this case, Richard spotted it for us. Uh, so he very carefully picked those moments that would work along with the score and with the sound design to uh, do what Foley does best, which is to support the performances of the actors and the narrative pieces, 
Um, and then also because it's a documentary, sometimes for the uh, interview sections, which are not the narrative parts, we're adding just little touches like hands together or somebody rubbing their hands on their legs or the kind of small motions and movements that people do that can uh, sort of underline the mood behind what they're saying. And so um, I just wanted to give a shout out to everyone on the team, first of all, to Jeff and Larissa for tackling such incredibly important topics um, in our lives you know, now. And then also to Richard and Mark and the picture editor as well to just say that, you know, it's in a film like this, what what you ideally want, I think, in the soundtrack is for each of the different parts, the music and the sound design and the foley and the picture editing and everything to work together almost like a symphony. And I think in this case, it did beautifully. I can't imagine a better uh, um, score honestly, and I know I'm getting away from Foley here, but just for a minute, I wanted to say like, it's really spooky. It's really scary in some points. It's almost like a horror film score. And then the sound design is, you know, it's, it's perfectly evocative of what is going on with, um, I was watching some of the scenes again today with uh, Tristan uh, in the animated pieces and going out to the bus and how he's coming up with this idea of of kind of pushing back against Google and so we have this um, montage of the, the paper airplanes flying in his doors and all those elements that really work in a different way like music. And so I think it's uh, for all of the crafts, for sound design, for Foley and um, everything, it's, it's really about picking the moments um, and then blending them together in a way that, that most supports the story. So... Foley artists oftentimes don't get to see the film in advance. Um, uh, we do often get uh, spotting sessions in advance. So we have an idea and we can, you know, discuss with the sound designer and, and talk about what's coming up. Um, but our, one of our main skill sets is to be able to, you know, work uh, just kind of run and gun as it were and kind of quickly and very rapidly understand what is the best way to capture the mood of a scene or a character in the action um, and hopefully you know have collected the right props and and hopefully perform it in a way that that uh, does the job that's great i'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that uh, no i wouldn't say a horror film i can definitely understand. like like the the topics and the conversations are pretty dire and you know obviously this is our reality. And I think that's what Jeff and his team tackled so well when it comes with the story and the narrative plot. Um, so going back to tone then, Jeff, when you first, you know, obviously brought Mark on and Richard and everyone else, what was the tone you wanted to strike? Because it's a little bit of, you know, storytelling education, but then it's also a little bit of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not hyper-realism, but it's just, it's kind of like we're accentuating these ideas in ways like visually of how, you know, AI is represented represented, and some of these other like visual components that you're introducing. So, yeah, what was the tone you wanted to, to at least introduce? Yeah, well, I, I just want to like echo everything that both Richard and Andrea were sharing right there around both this, this film kind of being a buffet of different styles. Like there were so many different moments and opportunities um, for us to exercise and, you know, work different muscles throughout making this film. Um, I, I think we went into it very consistently thinking about, how can we leverage the tools of cinema to get these ideas across that we've been learning about? And with that kind of backbone, 
it gave us the full plate of, you know, the full palette for us to work with. Um, that's what brought the whole narrative uh, concept into mind. Um, and then in working with Mark on the score and working with our editor Davis and our editor Vicky, like mapping out what's this emotional arc that we want the audience to go through. It was really hard actually to, to figure out the initial structure for the film because the you, we needed the doc to really meet people where they were at the beginning and pose this question of like, we weren't, what is exactly wrong with our technology? We know something's wrong, but it's, it's, it's hard to articulate and then go into the journey and kind of hit the thesis and, and then and build out um, kind of all the supporting evidence for that. And, and in mapping out that like intellectual structure that we had to do just from the, the outline of the nonfiction aspects, then it was layering onto all of that. Okay. We have all of this rich opportunity to make audiences feel different ways throughout the the course of the film. And that's where, I mean, I, I just love the finishing process. I love post. I love music and sound. Um, I love color as well. Like that's just another really fun uh, landscape to play with. I think this is why I love filmmaking so much is that you get to work with so many different mediums at the same time to spend years making this one thing that people are going to go and see and resonate with. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just from the the tone perspective, back to that part of the question, um, I don't know, Mark, maybe you'd like to jump into that as well. Like just the, the different emotional arcs that we were able to really guide um, both with the soundtrack and the sound design um, around, um, you know, what we were learning from our subjects. Um, and really just how, you know, giving a peek into the lens of what these algorithms are doing to us. Yeah. Well, I think our early discussions were about, you know, what does the documentary soundtrack sound like and what does the narrative score sound like? Um, and um, I think the interesting thing that we came up with is just like figuring out how these two worlds collide throughout the film. So um, at the beginning, you kind of have uh, this documentary and this narrative world separated. Uh, and they each have their kind of different uh, different music associated with them. But as the music, as the movie progresses, uh, you kind of have this electronic sound kind of infiltrate all of these human played instruments um, and kind of tweak it and um, and uh, warp it. Um, and I think, Andrea, you mentioned the, uh, the horror aspect of it. And I think there's nothing more scary than having this underlying, these underlying tones kind of manipulate you as uh, slowly without you even knowing it. And that's sort of what we wanted to do with the music is kind of just slowly slip in these electronic uh, sounds just to kind of uh, make the audience feel a little bit more uneasy throughout. What about you, for you, Richard? Um, knowing of what you're, 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 you have about three weeks of editorial and design, one week to mix, you have a Sundance, you know, deliverable looming, everyone like picture, picture can you like, you know, pretty much move along pretty quickly with you know they've had a pretty long lead time but you are the one who's responsible for really getting to the finish line what was your priority list where did you go did you have any time or energy to do any original recordings for this yeah so i i think i got the first cut to sort of review it in maybe october and that was before the uh, production had happened for the drama components so it had storyboards but that was where i sort of got a sense for what was what was coming down the pipe and um, and then, yeah, I think it was mid-December uh, that we got locked picture. You know, things are never locked. And there were certainly changes between then and when we wrapped the, the initial mix. So, yeah, just to give some sense of the time. So mid-December. And then I think it was the second week of January that we did our uh, our theatrical final for Sundance, our theatrical final mix for Sundance at, at Skywalker Ranch. And that was a five-day 
five-day mix. So that in itself was pretty quick. And then just to give you a sense of the whole timeline, then um, then the pandemic started, and our, Jeff will probably go into this um, more than I could, but um, obviously if you've seen the film, there's a whole, the, the pandemic is a, there's a chunk of the film that deals with that and, and throughout. Um, so that got added in subsequently. So it came back to us in the middle of the pandemic and we did additional uh, editorial for those additional sections and then did another final that time remotely with our re-recording mixer, Scott Lewis, um, who had been with us in January on site at the ranch, then doing it from, from his studio uh, down in Los Angeles. Um, uh, and that was sort of a, just a few days to get in all the new components and also do, at that point we knew it was going to Netflix. So that was uh, sort of rejigging uh, re a couple of things for it being a near field uh, mix. Um, and as far as time to record, I recorded some things, uh, obviously I, it was pretty compressed, just getting the turnover done, uh, getting our incredible dialogue, James Spencer up and running, cause he was only on it for a little over a week to get everything prepared and organized for Scott, which he did a, a great job with. Cause this has got drama. It's got, you know, uh, multi-channel, uh, production, and then it's got lots of interviews and we're dealing with a lot of, um, uh, ar archival sound from news clips and all that stuff. So he did what I just want to stress what a great job he did. And, and I'd re be remiss not to mention Jason Butler, our, our Foley mixer as well, who, who, who did an excellent job. We had a very limited time on the, on the Foley stage. And so as, as Andrea mentioned, I, I, I did the spotting and prioritized, like these are sort of the essentials and, and so forth, just, just really trying to optimize, um, the time as best I could. And then along. On the recording side of things, I for the drama component, I recorded lots of phone notifications and things. And um, for the for the drama, sorry, that was for the documentary side. And then drama side, I was creating all of the the phone notifications and um, as original content for that, but didn't necessarily record anything for it. It was sort of more sound design editorial. Um, and, but yeah, it was a very quick process. I think saving grace was, I think perhaps because they were so busy trying to finish the edit and, and, um, and, and, and were preoccupied with color and everything else. Whenever I was, I was sort of, I sort of knew I, I didn't have many opportunities for points of failure in the design process. So when I would send something like, here's my initial idea for the AI space or the, or the avatar of, of Ben or who's the, who's the, um, the son in the family or this is their console, or here's this big dramatic moment, or here's an initial pass at the, at the, um, of the big, you know, the riot, uh, protest scene. Um, and so I, I knew if, if, if too many of these got kicked back too many times, we were going to be in real trouble just because there, there was just wasn't a lot of time. And I, I think thankfully, cause they were so preoccupied pretty much every single time I sent something over, they were like, yep, sounds great. Keep going. <laughs> and so, uh, for, for better or worse. Just cause your work was so good that it honestly was like, that's great. <laughs> I have no notes on this and keep running with it. Uh, honestly, Richard, it sure, was just, sure. uh, we'll, we'll go with of, that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, lots of trust and, and, uh, uh, faith in all of that. There were a couple of times in the, on the mixing stage where we had to like figure out, you know, stylistically a different approach. I remember the riot scene was one of the challenging ones to kind of dial in and land on. And, um, and our, our editor, our picture editor was there as well. And so sometimes like when there were a lot of different people that had a slightly different vision for it and, uh, we're sort of discovering how that sound could really play out in the theatrical space. Um, that took a little bit of trial and error. But I think the team worked really, really well together in trying to massage through all of those and, and articulate what we were striving for and what we were going for with it. 
what is it like from your perspective, Jeff, to, you know, you've been living with the project for this long and now you're at the final stage. You, you've achieved what all filmmakers want, which is to have their film premiere at like a pretty substantial film festival. And now you're being forced to like really make some, you know, concerted decisions here, I suppose. So what what to you? How do you summarize that 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 last, you know, finish line? The first time we went to Sundance was just a friggin' exciting, like mind blowing. Everything about it was a phenomenal process. This is now our third film that we've gone through the process with, which I don't, I'm not meaning to say boastfully. I mean to say it from the perspective of like, you kind of get the battle scars in the process, and you have a better expectation of what you what you know you're going to go through. And I think for um, our producer, Larissa, and myself, we all kind of thrive in those high stress environments. And not that we're seeking them out, but there's like this odd comfort of like, here's a schedule. This is all the time you get. This is how we're doing it. And you're trying to make, you're just trying to push to make it as good as you possibly can with the time that you have available. And it's always that the tension of like, just trying to push, push, push for like, can we get it from that like 98% to 98.2 to 98.6 to like all those little incremental um, changes that we can make and, and just trying to, you know, um, throttle, throttle uh, what's realistic or not based on the limited time available. So, um, but that's where, you know, having a really killer team working with you and supporting the whole process is, is so critical um, because everybody is coming with such talent and such taste, quality taste, and being able to know how to like make good instinctive decisions and, um, and that align and align creatively. Um, so I, I think, you know, it just, you, I feel, um, I think any, any director in that position feels that comfort if they have the support of the team to be able to get through those crunch times and to be moving forward and, and to make it happen in like superhuman timeframes. Um, so I don't know. I, I really, it's funny. I, I don't know. I've never had a kid and nor would I ever like pass a human through my body. Right. But, but that notion of, of like the, the push of the final, you've got that final couple of weeks and it's all the stress and all the deadlines and you, you are giving birth to something like this team is coming together to, to make, this idea and this concept and, and the, these years and years worth of work come together at this final um, finish line and, and just getting it there so that the world can see it. It's, it's just so exciting. It's, it's very, very exhilarating. Get the sense of you never really know what uh, the potential of a project will have. But obviously, when Netflix picked this up, I mean, the numbers that it did were pretty astronomical in a way mm. that you know, when something comes out and everyone's talking about it, everyone that you're on the phone with, what are you watching this week? What's going on? It was the social dilemma. So, yeah. you know, can you, can you yeah. walk me through just the, the reality of getting your film on a platform like Netflix and then having to have that, those accolades and so much exposure? Yeah. I, I think our whole team was blown away by the response to the film. I mean, really, really top performing numbers um, with Netflix. Um, and I think it just speaks to the fact that as a society, as a as a civilization, as a culture now, we know something's wrong with our social media technology. And the film sort of tapped into that zeitgeist and helped reflect for everybody, like, there's something wrong with this. This is not how it needs to be. This is not how it should be. And I think that's what really invited conversations around it. Um, I mean, from teenagers to grandparents, like the whole spectrum in between, Americans um, all around the world, like people were seeing it and talking about it globally and and really elevating the conversation globally. And I think that's one of the things where um, it's just a testament to to what the team it was able to put together in representing these ideas that would um, that would hit a global audience and speak to the zeitgeist. 
That's awesome. I'd love to understand maybe Mark for you, you know, when you're maybe working in your home studio, putting together something that you really never know, you know, how's it, how's, you know, what's the canvas, what's, where is it going to be heard and seen? Um, you know, what do you were some of the fundamental elements of the score? Cause the tension that you build, the simplicity sometimes of like the choice of instruments, like, like Andrea was saying, like they're very powerful and like the tension throughout the dynamics of tension were uh, incredibly like, it never felt like we were coming back to the same sense of dread. Like it was a new sense of dread in a new kind of uh, frame, yeah. Yeah, well, I think some of the cool conversations um, that I remember having with Richard were about, you know, what is music and what is sound and how do those, how can you, um, how can you start to take apart music so that, you know, what, at what point does it become more sound? and what makes music human. Um, and I think uh, those were like some of the earlier concepts that I have is like, I, I was thinking about, uh, there was a study, um, I can't remember the study, but uh, they had um, a, they created a, an algorithm um, that would create Bach pieces based on, um, you know, the works of Bach, they would feed uh, this into an algorithm and it would spit out, you know, uh, Bach music. Uh, Bach music, and um, they would test to see who would um, who would think it was Bach and who would think it was um, uh, a computer playing it, uh, uh, doing it. And a lot of people couldn't tell the difference. And I think that was the original idea that kind of scared me is like, well, you know, what is music? Um, and uh, I think the first piece that I put together was this uh, piece that I called 8-Bit Sonata. Uh, which kind of became the the theme throughout the whole uh, throughout the whole uh, uh, movie, uh, which is this kind of simplistic piece, um, but played in sort of different different um, evolutions of it. Um, so at the beginning, it's more human played. It's it has more feeling and it's sweeping and it's kind of cinematic. And then as you go along, it starts to become more cold, and all the humanity starts to fade from it, and it becomes more electronic. Um, so I was kind of fascinated with that evolution of maybe one piece of music throughout the whole film. I'm looking at the, you know, the, fortunately they were able to release the soundtrack. I mean, there's some 30 plus cues, at least here in the soundtrack, but I mean, how many do you think there were across the whole film? Oh, I think there was, I think we came out with 89 minutes in the 93 minute <laughs> film, uh, of music. Uh, so quite, a, quite a bit of music, um, Thanks, Jeff. Uh, yeah, so, thank you. Thanks, Dave. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm not saying this to set you up, but I, I you know I want to understand like when, when I hear from Richard and Andrea, like you know, Andrea, for you, when you are given like you recognize that this might be a lot of music, where do you find your moments? Where like because there is it's true, like you know we're trying to find those sound opportunities, but like what have you found is when like Foley is like a must, like without Foley, we're not gonna like people are gonna be kind of fish out of water kind of feeling. Well, uh, I think that is the beauty of a film like this and a score like this and a uh, sound design like this um, and direction like this because it's dynamic. And so um, it's, it's the dynamicness of the soundtrack that creates the moments um, either in gaps in dialogue or, you know, times when there is no dialogue for a few minutes, um, like when... Um, a few people had mentioned uh, after seeing the film that they enjoyed the Foley in the scene where um, Ayala is alone in her room and she is kind of, she's crying. She's 
touching her face um, because of the upsettingness of, of the messages that she's seen and kind of her difficulty with um, navigating the social media, which uh, is, you know, she's, she's a great character because she's so representative of teenagers and the young teen experience with social media, which is, um, I watch my own kids going through it. So um, they're, they may or may not be struggling, but they don't talk about it a lot. And whatever it is that's going on with them is internal. And so for her, it was more her body language. And that's, that's where Foley can help. We can help with body language. We can help with, you know, is, is when someone smashes something, how, what does that sound like? And what, what kind of element can we bring to um, that scene that doesn't just, you know, create recreate the the physical breaking of it but all you know tries to get the the right sort of tone so you get some kind of emotional balance in it i think that's always the hope is that um because the sounds that we're making in foley are the sounds that relate to directly to the performances um that we're we're trying really to support the performances of the actors and the storytelling as well um, so as far as when is fully the most important, I think it's, it's the most important in the moments when we're most focused on performance. Um, but also a character in, in a scene could be some, you know, dry leaves blowing across the screen or kind of the crunching of the leaves at the, uh, the protest march. That can be a way that sound is a character too. And so it's, it's sort of just, you know, um, trying to get the, 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 the best out of whatever it is, the prop that we're performing with or the, the way that we're doing the feat so that the storytelling and the performance comes across. That's great. Um, you know, something that reminded me of is these sequences, these montages, or really quick cuts, um, maybe like an hour or so into the film. And it's a fun opportunity to really lean into kind of like the visceral nature of quick picture changes and the sound. Jeff, was that always something that you had you know, stylistically done for this film or how did that come about? Um, if, if you're referencing the section that I'm thinking of, um, there's a, a little homage to um, Requiem for a Dream in there um, when we talk about the addictive nature of this technology. Um, and so that was something that we, you know, discovered um, as we were, as we were working on the picture edit and bringing out these ideas around addiction um, we just knew we could lean into that um, and that there was the, the visual language um, from Darren Aronofsky that, that so re strongly resonates with me and, and with our team. So we were able to kind of uh, make a nod to that. And for you, Richard, I mean, you know, when you see moments like that, because like they're, so, they're incredibly effective and they're very quick and you really you're just kind of like you're seeing shapes and colors. But then it's really the sound that to me is the most impactful because it hits you really quickly and then you're kind of left with someone like a, you know, a talking head. And you're like, well, what just happened? Yeah. That sequence was probably the time, the, the part of the film I spent the most time of on relative to the runtime, probably put in a, I probably put in a day total for that alone. And it's, I mean, all the pieces together, I think are about 12 seconds. Um, so if I had applied that to the rest of the 90 minutes, <laughs> still be working on it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I had seen Requiem for a Dream, but when I was a teenager, and I, 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 I remember uh, I didn't I didn't reference that sequence. Though I'm sure there's there's probably some 
similarities in, in how it was originally approached to him, how I approached it just by nature of the, the imagery and what one would try and do with a sequence like that. But uh, for me, it was really about trying to find stimulating sounds that would match the dynamic nature of the, those, those images and how they were, how they were cut together and also try and find ways to relate to the sounds that I was using to the subject matter of the documentary and even the things that had been discussed recently. So, um, there's a lot of sounds that, um, are relating to drug usage because that had been mentioned as a, as a, as something that's sort of analogous to the way we, we use these devices. Uh, some one sequence as you sort of see the rushing of, of blood through veins or something, some sort of liquid through the body. And I use sort of a bunch of casino sounds, um, for that, like a slot machine and ding, 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 ding. And also was very careful to make sure that was pitched in, in relation to the music. So there's sort of a nice hit at the end. Um, I think we there's a, there's a close up of a syringe being, um, being injected. And I mean, it was really fun. And then I was using there's one sequence where you sort of like fly through an eyeball and I, I used the, the, the Mac mail send sound for that whoosh, um, and a bunch of like notification sounds and then, um, combined it with various other elements to, to sort of make it a bit more dramatic, like a formula one car, but. Yeah, just trying to find ways to inject that DNA into into the sound design in, in those moments. I mean, I remember there was a lot of back and forth of the very first sound that introduces us to that section, which is on the Pinterest logo. And I had combined the the iPhone unlock sound, which is sort of a And when I heard that, I was like, huh, sounds a little bit like a shotgun cocking. And so followed it with this sort of like big punchy that sort of uh, enters into that scene. So the, the unlock sound is on the A side, still on the subject in the documentary. And then the, the, the punch on the, on the Pinterest logo is, is sort of a shotgunny impacty design. And I have different associations with, with, uh, with gun sounds being from the UK, whether then, you know, they're not as prevalent. So there was a, I remember there was a bit of creative back and forth on that, where we were trying to dial back the sort of the gunniness of it. Um, where, but I still wanted to have that sort of connection of sort of prepping into this sort of injection of adrenaline and and all these all these uh, emotions uh, in that moment. So that was that was a really fun section to um, to design for. I remember that was tricky too because it was the first time we were really using that style in the film. And so if you know when we watch that one scene over and over, you get a certain emotional response. But then when you step back and watch the whole film and I forget however long you are into the film to introduce this very new visual and audio language. Um, that's where I think we were trying to do a lot of calibration there as well around like, what is that experience for the viewer to come into the scene? So we kind of, I think if I recall, Richard, we sort of toned back the very opening a little bit more to not like scare out uh, out of nowhere as much. And we sort of then were able to ramp within the shape of that scene to like build a little bit more um, in a way that I, I felt like it really landed well when watching the, the whole film through. You know, so, something that I, you know, was always thinking in the very beginning of when you guys, uh, just the early stages of this is so, well, sourcing the sounds and you say, okay, we need sounds of technology. We need sounds of social media. And like, it's a very like limiting landscape. I imagine like you can only go to so many things. And so you start, you start to have to think about how can we introduce other sounds to represent these things. So. You know, for you, Jeff, when you were th once again thinking about the tone, what is sound, what is music, and how do we kind of continue to come back to our relationship with technology? But, you know, like, at what point did you not want to keep going back to the same sound or, or represent it in the same way? Because you keep it's it's a the whole film is, you know, a 
extrapolation of the same topic in different in different views. So how was sound helping break that up for you? Yeah, I think those are just a lot of trust in Richard and Mark to think through this. I mean, we had those conversations around not wanting to lean into the two obvious tropes of social media and technology. We really tried that on the picture side too, to minimize um, what we would see from that perspective. Um, and, and I think there was just a lot of flexibility that we had um, in terms of just trying to keep that fresh. Um, I, I think that's huge kudos to Mark and the soundtrack for being able to like keep that consistent. And then I think Richard, we, we, we spent a lot of time debating and talking through like, what are the sounds like not using the actual iPhone sounds for many things or certain things. And then like needing it to still feel dingy, but not too cheesy versus not too fill in the blank. And it, it's a fine line because, you know, we, we use these things all day, every day. We all have such a deep association to it. Um, there are some sounds that have become so ingrained in our minds and in our bodies, literally physically ingrained in our bodies, where if you hear a certain sound, like you'll get your dopamine rush. And so we, we're both aware of that and trying to play with it and not fall too much into it um, based on the different parts of the film. So, um, so for like some of the addiction scenes, we were trying to lean into it a little bit more. The idea was like, use some of the generic sounds and maybe we'll get like the audience will actually feel their own dopamine rush from from those exact moments. And other parts of the film, we were really trying to stick to original sounds that Richard was working on so that it would, it would get the idea across and be you know tucked down and not too blatant and too obvious, but you get the emotional objective without it, it you know throwing people off. Yeah, one of the points I wanted to highlight um, was, you know, when talking about sound design and music and how those two worlds interact, um, I th thought it was really cool building the worlds of the AI, like the server room aspect of it. Because um, Richard, uh, having come from a musical background, a composing background, um, he kind of pitched some of those tones in the uh, in the rooms to uh conflict at certain points in the film with the music score and then at the very end when you know we kind of see this next stage of uh the computer world um being harmonizing with uh, with humans um the music and the sound design really harmonize uh, i thought that was like so cool when i when we heard it in the room yeah it's it's subtle but there are a lot of there are a lot of things that shift over the course of the film towards that that sort of final moment between the the AI as it's been reimagined and, and Ben's avatar. Um, the avatar itself has a, has a sound associated with it that at the beginning of the film, when it's sort of nondescript sort of human shape, and it's, there's a lot of activity in it that's sort of represented, represented in the visuals. And that over the course of the film, as it becomes better and better defined, uh, the sounds I associated with it uh, become much more simplified until at the very end, when it's sort of, become human to our eyes, um, that sound completely is, 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 is no longer there. Um, and the, the, the element that, that Mark's referring to is the sort of the, the natural sort of tone and sound of the room as, as it's sort of largely consistent through the film with all these various elements, including the sound of the, the console has its own sort of energy and hum. And then the AI voices we processed rather subtly, but, um, they also have their own processing, um, which I'm sure Jeff will want to talk about because <laughs> he gets a kick out oh, of uh, what we settled on. But <laughs> but uh, go for it. No, go for it. Richard. As yeah. as it, as it all breaks down during the moment where the code is rewritten, um, we obviously we lose the sound of the console. The the sound of the avatar is, goes away, and we're just left with this sound of the the, the, the room, which is much simpler. 
um, more more naturalistic, though still still artificial. But there's an air to it now that wasn't there previously. And then yeah, I I pitched it to the to the key of the the sort of final resolve of the music in that moment, which is just really powerful. And then on the foley side, we sort of hear the footsteps um, that are very naturalistic in that moment as it steps down, which we've never heard the avatar move before, and that really gave it a nice human quality as well as crucially removing the the uh, vocal processing. So when the AI utters its last line of, I think it's hello. Um, it, it, for me at least, and it's, you know, it's a subtle distinction to everything we've heard up until that point, but just removing that processing sort of really, there's, there's something I feel when I hear that human voice that I didn't quite get in the rest of the film up until that point. So there's a lot of little creative choices, I think that, that go into that contrast into that final moment in the AI space that were a lot of fun to sort of discover as a team and, and coming up with all those, those creative choices both on the music and the sound side and within the sound, the Foley, the backgrounds, the, the design, it all, it all sort of comes together in that moment. So, uh, so how much tinkering did you guys have between Sundance and Netflix then? Like how much, how, how much more, how many more days, how many more passes? We had, uh, um, I actually, Richard, do you know the number of days? Um, well, one of the tricky things was uh, during that time we made picture edits as well as uh, then adding in this whole scene. We cut a scene, we added in the scene, um, the uh, mapping the picture edits and getting that to reconform was yet another headache. I still don't know why that's so difficult technologically to make happen smoothly. Um, but and then we were doing uh, that final pass, as Richard mentioned earlier, we were doing that all remotely. Um, and so I was calibrating my home sound system. Um, and then we had these uh, both live, uh, like live feedback sessions and ways that we could, you know, watch it afterwards and, and uh, provide notes. So that, I feel like that was a week of, of an additional pass. Does that sound right, Richard? Yeah, I think, well, I'm trying to remember how, I think it was roughly, what, 15 to 40. 20 minutes of new material with the COVID stuff, maybe a bit less, but then also some restructuring. Because when, when, they, when they left the ranch uh, for Sundance, uh, not knowing that you know COVID would be what it became, I remember them saying, "Yeah, we got you know once we once we've you know found a distributor, we'll come back. We'll probably change the credits a little bit, but just a little adjustment, and then we'll you know we'll, we'll reprint and done." So I was like, "Okay, great, maybe a day, maybe two. I'm sure they'll have some notes." And then I got word, you know, I'm 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 at home and and working on other things, and I get word that um, that more changes they've coming. made a couple of changes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, many, and many rightly things. so, in, rightly so, incorporating um, you know what was happening in the world. I mean, I was watching it uh, recently, just in preparation for this, and I was—it's amazing, even given how much has happened with the pandemic since then. Uh, the way they incorporated it was so elegant and um, done so well that it, it still—it feels like this could have been cut yesterday. Um, which is really hard when you're dealing with something that's so topical and so many things are happening and changing on a day by day basis. But in terms of the, the practical nature of what we did, yeah, I think we probably had maybe three or four days of editorial to get all that new material in and handle the turnover and, and get the mix sessions ready for, um, ready for Scott, Scott Lewis. And, do some additional design work and then and then the mix itself I, I believe it was three days to to make all the changes and um reprint and deliver and our goal initially was was to use um sort of to monitor in real time and, and have them be able to provide notes uh jeff mark and larissa and davis and and, and everyone else on the team 
as we were working. Um, but everyone, this was right at the beginning of, this would have been what, May or April or May. So this was right at the beginning of the, the lockdowns. And I, yeah, so this was the first project I did from my spare bedroom office. Uh, and so we were still, you know, our incredible engineering and support teams at the ranch were doing an amazing job, but we were all still tr trying to figure out how to, how to facilitate all, the, all of these. So, um, we sort of had to do a bit of a, a initially we wanted to have everything being monitored in real time and they get offer notes and it, ultimately it just didn't work out that way. And we had to, uh, at the end of the day, bounce out, you know, stereos and five ones upload, send them to review. They had sync, then download, then they would review, then they would write notes. It was, it was a long turnaround process to, to get sort of do what in the room would take 10 seconds to incorporate notes. So it was, uh, it was a challenge. It was, I think it worked much better than it could have. Uh, it worked really well in my mind because we had gone through the experience in person already and we had all the time to sync on style and creative and vision and objectives and tone. Um, had we gone into that fresh, I think it would have been so much harder for me at least to communicate. And and I think we just, the whole team with, with Richard and with Scott, our, our mixer, uh, we had that established language for what we wanted the scenes to do. So even if there are tweaks here or there, um, like the the, um, the objectives of much of the many of the scenes remained the same, and so I think that was really the shorthand that we were able to to tap into for that process. That's awesome. You know, I, I'm thinking back of when the film first came out, and I remember after the film immediately going to my phone and deleting a bunch of social media apps <laughs> and having this, uh, the, you know, what Andrea was talking about, like this relationship. You know, there's something about watching a film and having a real reaction and a real takeaway. Um, you know, as an audience member, but it was a, it was, you know, the timing of when this film came out and the subject matter and the combination of everything you're presenting to me was a perfect storm. And so I'm curious, you know, lastly, for each of you, what is your takeaway now with the perspective you have? I mean, from Sundance to Netflix to Emmy nominations, what, what, what yeah, what's your personal takeaway, whether it's social media related or not? Maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Andrea. What's your, yeah, what's your takeaway? Well, um, it had been a while since I'd seen the film and I wondered uh, before I reviewed it if I would feel differently having gone through at least as much as we've gone through so far of the pandemic and uh, everyone sort of feeling more isolated than usual and everyone maybe reaching for social media more than usual. Um, so I do think that... Uh, Aside from the extreme manipulation of social media, there is the, you know, the, the other, the more positive side. Um, I, it's not enough to balance it out, but at least there is some small positivity in the, um, the ability to help us stay connected, especially when we're so extra isolated during something like the pandemic. But it's at the same time, I'm just as terrified having now review, reviewed the film as I was the first time that I saw it about the greater implications of what it's doing to, you know, governments and societies and our children and my children. And I told them again today, look, you know, you've got to, I want you to look at this film again. And it's, um, it's hard to get them to take it as seriously as I would like them to. And I hope that, uh, they will, <laughs> because I think it's really important. So that's my take. And I, and I want to delete my Facebook account. Um, 
So whether I do or not, we'll see. But I at least I at least want to. Yeah, yeah, sure. The thought is there. And Richard, yeah. Richard, I I think you have deleted your Facebook account, right? You're not on Facebook anymore. That's that's correct. Yeah. So I through I mean it it was hard not to after not just seeing this film. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to see it, but to sort of work on this and have all the additional conversations and the back and forth. You know, I learned beyond watching the film, just speaking with Jeff and Marissa and Mark and who'd spent all these all this time interviewing these these subjects and there's so much you know people don't get to hear in the film it, it by the yeah i think it was last last summer we'd wrapped up we had wrapped the the mix for for the netflix and before it came out i i made the decision to uh yeah deactivate my facebook account deactivate my instagram account and deactivate my instagram though they only let you do it for about 30 days before they offer up your handle so that's still up though i haven't tweeted on it in a in a year, though I, I will admit I occasionally go on to to snoop around. Um, but yeah, I haven't been on net, on Facebook or Instagram. And for me, it was just a, you know, I think Andrea's noting of the sort of the balance is, is sort of how it, how I viewed it. You know, I, I acknowledge, especially as a foreign national living in another country with friends and family and everyone else, you know, back in the UK for me, there were certainly many benefits to the, these platforms. And even some professional, that's where I really struggle with it is the professional benefits that can come out of being on these platforms. And especially the way it sort of starts to favor the people who are more comfortable with them and more outgoing or more, more willing to, to sort of present themselves professionally on those platforms. And I, you know, I was someone who always struggled with that. I would on Facebook, I would permit myself one annual post um, of a sort of like my year in review and that was it. And I never posted anything. Um, and this was before I worked on, on the social dilemma. So I was already trying to figure out how I wanted to, to manage, um, my, my interactions with these tools, but yeah, I'm off, I'm off of them now. And for me, it was just about recognizing that for now, at least, and the way they're set up and the way I was using them, even with trying to manage them best I could, the, the cons I think were outweighing the pros and that's not going to be the same for everyone. Um, but I, I would just simply encourage people to try and have an honest look at how they're interacting with these tools, what they're getting out of it. If, if there is a significant imbalance there, are there things they can do to change how they're interacting with these tools to address that, that balance, or just trying to take a little bit of time away from them. I, I, when I left them, I thought, I thought it was going to be really hard and it was for maybe the first week, but once I got to the second week, the third week of not being on them my whole sort of brain chemistry relating to this thing and the addiction and wanting to check and looking for that notification symbol just had, had fixed itself, at least for me. And it was really helpful when I went back on like a year later, because I wanted to just share that this film was out in the world to my, my followers. Uh, <laughs> uh, I went back on and Facebook had completely redesigned that thing and I had no idea how to use it. So it made it, it I was like, oh, well, thank goodness. I've got no incentive to try and learn how to interact with this thing again. And so I, I just posted and then was out again. And then I deactivated the account. But that's, that's been my own little, little journey, thanks to, and it certainly wouldn't have happened. Uh, I, I suspect had I just watched this film, I, I would still be on these platforms. But that additional layer of working with these people and hearing more and learning more, which is what I would encourage everyone to do if you're, if you're thinking on these things, um, just really, for now at least, convince me to step back. Thank you for sharing that. I, I feel like it's, yeah, everyone like is isolated in their own decision making of like, do, do I really want to disconnect myself from this virtual world? And I think when you mentioned about like the professional aspects of well, for all of us who do creative work, 
there is a certain component now of, well, we don't have the in-person, so how do we connect with the greater community? And so we, like for you, Mark, what, uh, you said you're in Colorado, is that correct? Yeah, in Longmont, Colorado, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, how, how you know, working on this project and, and, you know, like the residual effects of, of it, how have you found your relationship with social media and, and just, yeah, the experience of being a part of this team? Yeah, um, I think, you know, uh, having been the sound recordist and recording all of these interviews, I feel like I got like a master class on the subject matter and all the different facets. And I think like after each interview, I kind of had a different view about what I should do about my my social media. Um, I think the first things that I did was, you know, leave the phone out of the bedroom when I go to sleep, um, turn off all the no notifications. Um, and even just that was like a huge game changer. Um, and I think I started realizing, uh, kind of going with what Richard said, is like what the uh, psychological toll was on uh, on my psychology when I was using these apps and why I was reaching for my phone and why I was posting. Um, having that buffer in between me and whatever I was using was it just kind of like show it was like an insight into what I was feeling uh, internally. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think social media is is a powerful tool for musicians and for professionals. Um, I just wish it wasn't um, built on a platform that manipulated you. Um, I mean, during the pandemic, I was inspired and connected with many musicians and got to have great conversations with that. So there's ama some amazing benefits. I just wish uh, there wasn't a darker side to it, too. Jeff, being part of the, the, the brainchild behind curating this conversation, I can't imagine that you go into this the same person as, as you come out. So and especially now with all Not the time all, that you yeah. spent, you know, along with this project. So yeah. where, today, at least today, where where are you at versus when you started? I've, I've stopped. Yeah, I stopped using um, all social media and the making of the film. Um, and for me, it was very similar to Richard in the way you were talking, Richard, about. I mean, Richard, after the film was done, he would be listening to all these podcasts and all reading these articles and sending it over. And did you hear this? Did you hear that? And I just Richard continued his own like uh, education on the subject. Um, but I, I, I think for me, um, there was this experience, I, I mean, there's so many stories I can share and so many anecdotes, but, um, I learned about the resurrection algorithm, which is a very specific way that if a user stops using the platform, they try to get you back onto the platform. They literally consider you dead and need to resurrect you back to life. And, uh, and for me, as I was weaning myself off the platforms, I started to see the resurrection algorithm in full effect, texting me and emailing me to try to get me to come back on. And so knew, knowing what it was, knowing what, what they were doing intentionally and how the system was really just trying to get my, my eyeballs back on the platform for ads, not for my benefit, but really for their business model. Um, it just kind of made me sick of the whole system and it made it easier to, to step away. And I recognize I, you know, as Mark was sharing, there are positive things that can come from these platforms. It's uh, the comparison I make there. It's like, it's great if I can get on a plane and fly around the world, right? That's an awesome use of technology, yet it has a huge consequence for climate change. And we have to weigh like this big systemic challenge of climate change versus the individual benefit of using it at a moment in time. There's some activists that won't ever get on planes, right? And there's some people who are really cutting back on their travel because of climate. Um, and I think it's a very similar comparison to our technology and social media in particular. Like when is it actually serving us and when is it not? And can we, can we get the benefits without the, the consequences? Yeah, really well put. I feel like as we're navigating this current version of our of our world with the pandemic, it's like 
the meaning of your film takes on a whole nother another layer that was maybe unexpected or unforeseen obviously so one, one thought if i may add there michael um i think the pandemic has hopefully i think for many people it's really given us a sense of how do we want to spend our time and what's important to us like who are the important people to us like we're all thinking about mortality on a regular basis we're all sick and tired of these you know the status quo that that doesn't serve everybody i think there's this huge shift in the zeitgeist around like what is meaningful interaction or not um, there's this one line that that didn't make its way into the film, but um, one of our subjects referenced how social media is not connection. It's connectivity. It's not connection. It's the ability to connect. Right now, we can have this conversation from around the country in real time and share a deep conversation. We would not have this level of nuance or depth if we were on Twitter right now or if we were on a Facebook comment thread, right? Like the ability to actually have meaningful connection with humans is what we're starved for. That's what we really, really want. And I think a lot of social media just sort of gives us the illusion of that. It gives the the sense of connection without the real depth that hum, humans are looking for, that, that us as an animal, like the homo sapiens species is really trained for and what we thrive off of. Um, and so I think that's that's where... People are so eager to come back in person and to spend time in person and to have real human human to human connection because that's that's how we're designed. Yeah, well put. I, I feel one of the very poignant statements, the quotes in the film was this one from uh, Edward Tuft about there are only two industries I call their con- customers users illegal drugs and software. When I read that, I was just like, that's it for me. Like that's all I need to really, you know, leave myself right. with to be like, well shoot, you got me there. I can't really argue with that. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're all navigating this new landscape as it changes, you know, feels like months to years. And we don't really have the perspective until we're well beyond it. And by then, it'd be a sh- it's really uh, the unfortunate reality. If you look, if you look at how much time you spent on whatever it is, you're like, man, I, I could right. pro- I w- I probably want to use that time to do something else. So yeah, I just right. want to thank you guys and right. c- congratulate you guys, Richard, Mark, Jeff, thank Andrea. You. Congratulations on your Emmy nominations. I feel like it's one of those films that, you know, the right time, the right place with the right people involved. And um, yeah, I'm so happy to ha- obviously shed a little light on the, the creative process because it's no easy feat just to even pull off a film. So yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, and Jeff, thank you again so much for the opportunity to work on the film. And Richard, thank you as well. It was excellent. Thank you to (laughs) our amazing uh, Fully Mixer, Jason Butler, and also to Scott Lewis. And as you rightly mentioned, Richard, James Spencer did an awesome job as well. And I'd also like to thank and recognize the, the subjects in the film because... And Jeff could probably speak to this better than I, but I mean, this, this doesn't exist without them, you know, stepping out and taking some risks to, to share with, with anyone who cares to watch this film, what, what, at least their, what their perspectives are on, on what's going on, which are so crucial to, uh, to the film. Now that my kids are a little bit older, I think they might uh, resonate with the film even a little differently. Um, because they're getting closer to the age where they're going to be going out into the world and maybe they will be working in technology. And it's, um, it's, it's, it is a wonderful aspect of the film that it gives you that insight into who those people are and what, what kind of um, issues and ethical questions do they struggle with? And just the fact that they do struggle with them, I think is important because as an industry, uh, you know, not, not, not all industries have had um, 
it, it's just it's great that the film gave insight into into the way that industry insiders have struggled with these questions and issues and continue to and it's unresolved but at least we know that people are trying to uh figure it out well thank you guys and obviously for folks who haven't had a chance to see the film it's on netflix and i'm so happy to see that your soundtrack mark is released too so that people can take a listen just to the music so yeah it's it's an incredible opportunity for people to revisit something that i feel like has not gone out of fashion and this topic to me is just like it was so refreshing to go back and revisit this film and watch it again and yeah celebrate all the work you guys did so yeah thank you again thank awesome. you Michael. thanks so much thanks so much for yeah, thank, you. thank you thank you